Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Alexa Haggerty is an anthropologist who works with forensic teams to investigate crimes against humanity in Latin America. She examines bones for evidence of torture, helping to gather evidence of atrocities and, at the same time, bring meaning to families who've suffered from unimaginable loss. She writes about that work in the book Still Life with Bones, Genocide, Forensics and What Remains. Alexa sat down with Luke Naylor Perrett for a powerful and profoundly harrowing interview. Alexa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So just for anyone listening, um, a sort of content note, a, a trigger warning, this story involves a lot of violence of all sorts. So if, if that's not for you, maybe maybe skip this episode. And speaking of which, and this is a, a very broad and nasty question, but for those who maybe uh, either lived through it, but only vaguely were aware, or those who are maybe too young, what happened in Guatemala and Argentina to mean that you ended up studying such violence and had to do your job there? You know, what are the, what's the what's the study notes version of of those conflicts in the in the twentieth century? Right, sure. In Guatemala, there was a thirty six year armed conflict, one of the longest in Central America, and there was a peace process that began um, in nineteen ninety six, and it found that in this very small country of 8 million people, that 200,000 people had been killed, that 45,000 people had been disappeared, and that more than 1 million people had been displaced, um, with many people going to Mexico. And that this Guatemalan state was responsible for 93% of these abuses, and that 80% of the victims were Maya. So the indigenous communities of Guatemala were particularly affected and targeted. So this was deemed a genocide. And then in Argentina, um, the work revolved around the dictatorship, and that was in the late 70s to early 80s. And in this, during this dictatorship, um, up to 30,000 people were disappeared. So in both of these cases, um, the, the bodies of victims were hidden in, in mass graves, hidden in different ways. And so um, the work that I did was with the forensic teams um, of Guatemala and of Argentina, who um, are still searching for the bodies um, of the victims of these genocides. And we're going to get into especially those disappeared later. But I want it to be sort of really known that part of the, the beauty of this book is that it's incredibly personal. Um, and how you personally reckon with that violence is is really important. I'm going to quote something here, again, content warning. Um, People told me stories of babies being beaten against walls, pregnant women eviscerated, men burnt alive, girls raped in front of their families, boys decapitated, people hacked to death with machetes. At various points, unsurprisingly, you speak about the emotional and, and physical toll that this took on you. You, you say you, you had nightmares, you saw ghosts. There's a beautiful line where you say that anxiety inserts itself between day and night, prying it apart like oysters. And Could you just speak about how you personally interacted with that violence and, and how maybe your, your views on violence changed or evolved while studying the bodies? And, and above all, are you doing okay now? You know, I, I went into the field 
having studied these conflicts, I certainly knew I knew numbers like 200,000 people killed in Guatemala. I can't really wrap my mind around a number like that. So I think that I didn't really understand what that meant until I was in the field and until I was literally standing in a mass grave and seeing the first um, bones that I saw. And so in that grave, maybe I saw the initially the, the bones of four or five people. So four or five people, you know, that's just an absolute drop in the ocean in this kind of genocidal violence. But confronting that, seeing that was overwhelming. So then I began to sort of understand in a new way, in, in a visceral way, what those numbers mean. Also, because I had lost my own father fairly recently before I went into the field, I had was having my own experience of grief, so I knew what it felt like, what it felt like to lose one person, how that's shattering. So then you begin to think, what am I looking at in this mass grave? I'm looking at so much grief. What am I looking at in a community who's lost so many people? I mean, some communities were entirely wiped off the face of the earth in, in Guatemala. You know, you, you, you talk about that moment where you stand on the edge and, and you have this personal relationship. And I think there's a, there's a tightrope throughout forensic anthropology and through the work that you do, sort of encapsulated by a beautiful moment where one of your colleagues measures a, a skull that has been shot. And then when she's finished, she runs a hand over the, the forehead as if she's kind of soothing a sick kid. Yeah. And it strikes me as incredibly, uh, an incredibly difficult tightrope to walk, that, that sort of distance from the bones and from the evidence, but then also that closeness in understanding that they, they were once human. I'm guessing that, that no one ever walks that tightrope successfully. Well, I mean, I think that, well, I think some people do walk that tightrope successfully. I think that, you know, the um, forensic professionals, the practitioners that I worked with really are able to walk that tightrope. But I think it takes a really unusual person, and I think it takes a lot of training to be able to do that. I just think it's an incredible, incredible skill. And I wasn't able to completely do that. You know, I, I couldn't ultimately continue with that work. But that only gives me all the more admiration for the people I know, the colleagues um, that I worked with who are able to do that, who are really able to, um, in Clyde Snow's words, work during the day and cry at night. People who can maintain a real sense of humanity, a sense, you know, maintain this connection with the families and the communities but also do their do their work so i mean i think it's in the same way that you know not everyone um is cut out to be a surgeon that not everyone can be a forensic anthropologist i certainly couldn't ultimately but i felt it was almost in a way because i couldn't that i think i was able to witness with so much <laughs> awe and appreciation those who those who can and also that, that awe definitely comes through in the book and, and I also share it and maybe it's a testament to my, <laughs> my lack of abilities that I can't even imagine someone doing it successfully. But I want to centre us back on the people against whom that violence was perpetrated. For me, the, the story that kicked me in the chest 
was that of you you are in the lab you're doing a kind of test if you like under the scrutiny of your your elders and you're given a set of bones to investigate and suddenly you find a dog canine in the collection could you maybe share with us the the process of how you tried to to understand that dog canine and then how that fits into the wider ideas of funeral rites and exhumation and uh, and forensics. Yes, yes. So this was, it was a kind of test, um, a kind of informal exam. And I was quite nervous because I was the only social anthropologist in, in our um, small cohort in this training. And uh, I was working with two other practitioners who had a lot more experience than me and were a lot better than a lot better than I was. Yeah, so we were pulling the bones out of this box and beginning to articulate this skeleton. And then one of my um, colleagues pulled out a bone, and the other colleague said, "Well, that's not that's not human. That's canine." And I um, honestly just felt relief that I had thought that the bone looked different. Like I knew that there was something different about that bone. So we we went on with our test and. We really struggled with the case. It was a little bit complex. And then at the very end, when we were done, um, so the other people in the lab were sort of quietly minding their own business as we attempted, as we struggled with this case. And then sort of everyone started to laugh and talk and, you know, um, and um, sort of judge our performance, which had not been great. But then one of our mentors, be, you know, began to tell us a story. So, so um, my colleague asked, "Well, what, you know, what, what was the canine bone?" And I think at that point we had all thought it was kind of like a trick question. It was like someone had put it in there to to see if we were able to see that one of these things was not like the other and um, and discern. But he said, "Oh, that bone is there because uh, that was her dog, and she was always with her dog." And that hit me. <laughs> yeah, talk about being kicked in the chest. That kicked me in the chest because I had been so kind of in this mode of that I'm taking an exam, and I had lost. I had lost touch for a, a moment, for a while, with the humanity of the bones in front of me, and that this was this. Um, no, sorry. <laughs> Even talking about it now is is upsetting. So this was the you know the body of a of a girl, and she had been found at the bottom of a well, and seventy four other bodies had been found on top of hers, all all biologically male bodies, and hers was the only biologically female body, and then there had been these canine bones. And I think that so that you know the the team, the Guatemalan forensic team, FAFG, had been pulling, excavating this well, excavating this well, finding all of these male bodies, and then they got to the bottom and they found the body of this girl. And I think that they were also, I think it was a startling, a startling discovery. And so they began to research to try to to try to understand what had happened to try to identify this girl to try to you know with the hope that maybe her remains could be returned to her family at that point 
but in a very complicated way. And I think here we have to think about how uh, traumatized societies are by this level of violence for a lot of complicated reasons that I don't think, you know, anyone will ever know the, the full extent of. Her family did not want her body back. That may have to do, we don't know. I mean, it may have to do with um, something I talk about in another part of the book, which is a Seprazarco trial, which has to do with the um, kinds of sexual violence that accompany war. So we don't know. But, it, but the, the end point is, is that here is this, the body of this girl and, they, and her dog because they knew from oral histories, from talking to people, that this was a girl who was always with her dog, who loved this dog and was always with her dog. So uh, she was not able to be, what we'd say, scientifically identified, although she, her, her DNA is still in the database, and that's always a possibility that that will change. But nevertheless, I think there was a real human connection, a real care about this girl and her story um, and what had happened to her, that she had been executed on a military base and her body thrown into a well. So the team, you know, has kept her body and, and holds her body, keeps her body uh, waiting for the possibility that she may some, someday be identified and be returned to a family member. And her case, because there are things about her remains that are quite useful for training in forensics, they're useful for uh, learning to identify the kinds of violence and atrocity that forensic teams are called on to testify about, for example, in, in international courts of law. Her body is extremely valuable for training students like me, or probably more importantly, students um, like my colleagues who have gone on to work in um, really important posts and, and do this kind of work professionally. But I think that her body is also really important, not only for what she, what her body teaches sort of in a technical forensic way that can help prosecute these kinds of atrocities and crimes, but also because she's there with her dog. And she reminds us that she was a person. She was a girl on this earth. And that she's exactly the reason that this kind of work <laughs> absolutely has to be done. Alexa, thank you so much. That I'm, I'm sorry that it's, that it's still so painful to, to talk about. Um, and anyone listening right now, if, if they doubt how beautifully you write. Um, I mean, I think that that, that story is a, is a testament to it. I, I want to, to key in on something very clear in the way that you've been speaking and in all the stories that you tell, which is this, uh, this idea that the, the dead aren't dead. Then that that you know, throughout, throughout the book, the dead drown, they get lost, they make demands, they suffocate, they speak. Why do different cultural understandings of the well-being of the dead matter for the wider picture here? I think that that's an enormous, <laughs> enormous question that, um, you know, now I've written a whole book on it and I'm still thinking about it. But what I do know is that um, our relationship with the dead matters a tremendous amount. And it, 
As far as I can tell, it matters to societies everywhere and seems to have probably always mattered. I mean, that's one of the things that we find as we look into the deep, deep history of humanity is that the dead have been treated with care, you know, buried with care or, or, or perhaps cremated with care or whatever the particular ritual is. I think that it matters a lot in forensics because obviously the work that's happening in forensic exhumation is incredibly important from a legal point of view. It's very important to be able to um, have evidence and proof of the kinds of crimes that governments and states are trying to hide when people are disappeared when bodies are hidden in a mass grave. So that kind of legal evidence is clearly incredibly important. Sort of another piece of that is the, is the science. So that, obviously those are related. So being able to, like the, the way in which a DNA has enabled so many more people to be identified and identified with so much more certainty, although um, other traditional types of forensic identification that are not DNA-based continue to be important because DNA evidence isn't always available for various reasons. So the, the legal and scientific piece, I think, is really well understood, in, and we, we know how important that is. But what I saw in my research and what I'm arguing for in this book is that if we only measure the forensic exhumation of mass graves, in these legal and scientific terms, we might be missing something really important about them. So, for example, these teams struggle with funding because it takes a really long time to find these bodies, you know, bodies that have been purposefully hidden. So now 30, 40 years out from the, the sort of impact of the violence, these teams are still looking for bodies. And I think that it would, might be easy, for example, for a funder to say, to measure the success of a team. Well, how many bodies did you find this year? How many bodies did you identify this year and, re, and return to families? And sometimes those numbers are modest, which is not to take away from the numbers because it's so much work to find these remains that, you know, an enormous amount of, of effort goes into that. But I would say that, that even when you know, the numbers are modest or even when maybe a, um, grave, a suspected gravesite is exhumed and it's found that it's in fact not the gravesite, that can happen. Or when it's exhumed and it's found to, to not contain very many bodies, they were expecting to find a very large mass grave but instead find a small mass grave. Those are not failures. They're not failures for the communities. It, they're not failures for the families because the very fact that someone is searching, that someone is looking, that these names of missing people are being spoken, that's incredibly important. And, and what I think is that that is a, a form of caring for the dead and that it is really part of our humanity. So that's what I think one of the arguments in the in the book that I'm trying to make is that in a sense, exhumation itself, the process of exhumation itself is a ritual. It is a ritual of caring for the dead. 
And when we look at it in those terms, we can see that just searching for the graves, even if they're not found, or even if fewer people are, you know, are, are found, or even if fewer people are identified, or in some cases, people like, for example, would be found and not identified because everyone else in the community was, was also killed, and there's no relatives left to make the DNA identification. So it's that even in those circumstances, which maybe from a legal or scientific point of view, would not be characterized as a success, are still very important. They're still very important from a ritual and human point of view, if that makes sense. It definitely does, and it definitely comes across. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Just as you were speaking there about something that doesn't seem ritualistic taking on that form, one of the scenes that reoccurs throughout your, your time in, in Guatemala and Argentina is is this idea of the testimonio is is another thing that that we we we're used to anthropologists going and interviewing but this this form of interview quote unquote feels very different feels much more ritualistic could you just explain what testimonials are and and where they fit into this wider story yes absolutely so i remember very clearly sitting in my methods class at stanford looking out this window at these sort of beautiful, manicured, rolling lawns of the campus, learning how to do interviews. And when I came to Guatemala, I began to do interviews. That's what I had been trained to do. And the first person I interviewed was named, named Don Jaime. And I asked him for an interview, and he said, yes, let's do it. We made a time. It was going to be after lunch. He, he showed up. And then other people began to gather, and I was, I didn't quite know what was going on. So soon a, a lot of people had gathered, sort of like some people from the team, many of the families that were visiting the site, and people had kind of started to set up this whole place, like that there was this uh, kind of a little log that Don Jaime was going to sit on, and they spread out this plastic tarp, kind of like a, almost like a carpet. People began to sit on it, and I thought, "What? Like, what is going on?" And this is was my introduction to testimonial. So, what testimonial is is it, it's a form that has a really long history um, in Latin America, and it's a kind of form of truth telling. It's telling your story, telling your story of being wronged of of an injustice. Almost, it's almost like a kind of, there's something that feels judicial about it, like it's something that would be like a testimony that you'd offer a court, except that there is no court, 
because very often, you know, testimonial has developed in places where there's been tremendous impunity and the justice system really is not, um, not an option, not working for people. So this is a place to, to give uh, a testimony to the community, to people gathered, um, to, to, speak, to speak the truth of what happened to you. And I think it has political uses, it has psychological uses, you know, it's part of healing, but it's also part of us kind of moving against and pushing against impunity. So Don Jaime, um, you know, told me his absolutely uh, incredible story of what happened to him and his family, but it wasn't an interview. It was something very different, and and it did. It took me a, a long time to to learn. So I, you know, I was, I came in, sort of with one set of skills, and then many of those I just had to sort of set down and learn a whole new set of skills. I, I think it's really interesting that that testimonials are kind of the platonic reverse of what they often talk about, which is that word that you've used a few times, disappearance, and to be disappeared. And I think that it's it's worth going into that. I think you know everyone has has an idea of it, but but truly, you know, picking it apart, who was disappeared, why were they disappeared, how were they disappeared, and then in that in that moment where someone is taken. What are the ripple effects of, you know, someone being disappeared and, and the their wider community? You speak about this this thing, you know, silence is health, and and the logic of disappearance. Could you just speak speak to that logic, please? Yes. Yeah, so disappearance is a term that was actually originally coined in Guatemala. I think that it's um, most often associated with Argentina. It is the practice of secretly take kidnapping someone, um, often imprisoning them in a secret prison, uh, and then killing them and hiding their body. It was actually first practiced um, by the Nazis, um, but it was really, let's say, picked up and innovated on and scaled in Latin America, and of course is, is something that... Um, now happens all over the world. So why would a regime choose to do this? One reason is that they're hiding evidence of their atrocities. So you don't ever really know what happened to this person. There's no body. They, they could say, well, they would, what, peop, what the um, junta, the dictatorship in Argentina would often say is like, oh, these people who are missing, they've just run off to Europe you know, they're, they're not dead, they're alive somewhere hiding in Europe. So it gives this sort of plausible deniability. So that's one piece of it. But it's also um, an incredible form of psychological torture. It can freeze a society in, in fear because you don't know what's happened to these people. People are just disappearing. Maybe it's someone in your own family, maybe it's you, you it's a neighbor, or it's someone, a work colleague that you hear about who, or who stops showing up to work. So it is, um, it causes, you know, a form of real terror in a society. And then for the people who are closest to the disappeared person, you know, it causes incredible anguish because you, you don't know what's happened to them. You don't know if they're 
alive or if they're dead or if they've suffered or you don't know. And this can go on and on and on for years and years and years. And for some people for a lifetime, you know, um, mothers who spend their adult lives searching for the children who, who may die themselves before their children are found. So it's, it's a, I mean, yeah, it's a very, very upsetting, upsetting thing. It is also upsetting for those few survivors who had the experience of being kidnapped because they have reported that in these secret prisons, you know, that their guards saying to them things like, uh, you're sort of dead to the world, no one knows where you are, no one can find you here, uh, this complete loss of identity where uh, your name is turned into a number. So it's really a cruel, terribly cruel practice. It's it's cruel beyond its years as well, and and that's where it kind of intersects with your with your work, because in all the ways that we deal with death and mourning and and closure, disappearances seem to mess all of them up. Whether that's the pressure once a body has been found to um, to feel something, to feel a connection, as as in the case of one of the stories, or you know, I think one of the cruelest uh, stories was when someone had their father return to them piece by piece over the course mm. of many years. Yes. So speaking about closure, you posit the idea that actually we should maybe replace this idea of, of getting over a death with a kind of zigzagging, meaning-making empowerment. Could you speak a little bit about that and, and about how that, like what your experience with the, the disappeared how that fed into to your ideas about closure? I mean, to be clear, these are not only my ideas. There are many psychologists um, who have also been questioning this idea of closure. But it's really an idea that it, that is stubborn. I think that it's 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 something that we intuitively cling to, even as perhaps this sort of psychological theory has moved on. I think it's you still find this idea quite quite a lot. So certainly disappearance calls into question all sorts of ideas about grief and closure. Because as you said, what does it mean to get back a, a small piece of your loved one that maybe a DNA identification has been made, so there might be a small um, piece of bone, and you might get out this kind of, uh, or, or be emailed, this sort of, computer-generated DNA sequencing that says that, oh, this person is 99.99% possibility this is your father. But how do you actually make the connection to to feel, to know, oh, this is my father, this is my mother, this is my child? That's an extremely challenging thing. Then, you know, another challenge, of course, is that... for most um, kind of traditional forms of funeral, there is the expectation that the body is there. So how do you carry out a, a funeral without a body? And you may not want to carry out a, a funeral, even if someone has been missing a long time, because there may, on the one hand, be uh, this hope, this hope beyond hope that they might still, they might still return somehow or that their body would be found. 
Or there can be a great deal of guilt for families, like they don't want to have a funeral because that's somehow uh, giving up hope, or it would be almost like as if they were killing the person to have a funeral. So there's just many, many complicated um, emotions and complicated things to grapple with for families of the missing. And that too is part of the cruelty of disappearance. You know, it just gives this enormous, terrible psychological burden to everyone who loved that person. So through my research, I really began to just feel that closure is maybe not the right, maybe not the right concept, that um, there may be grief that goes on forever, yet there can also be healing, yet there can also be resilience. So that there's just something much more, much more complicated than something like closure. And also for some families, there's really a kind of insistence on almost the opposite of closure. You might almost call it like an opening, a continuous opening. And that might be political. That might be a continuous opening and insistence that the kind of political demands that perhaps if, for example, you know, some of the people who disappeared were activists, some were, you know, even guerrillas. So like insisting on some of the political demands that may have um, been in swirling around the disappearance or insisting on the political demand that the disappearances be recognized, that there not be impunity. That's been an enormous, enormous struggle in both Argentina and Guatemala. Um, but in Guatemala, it says that that's a struggle that ha- goes on and on, that families fight and fight to have the violence of the genocide recognized, to have the perpetrators brought to justice. So it could be, I say that grief uh, can, is, is obviously can be deeply, deeply personal, but it also has this political dimension. And I'd maybe particularly in the political dimension, can often be a matter of opening of, um, well, for example, oftentimes you'll hear families of the missing say the name of, of their loved one and, they, and then say presente, present, present. Not, we're not closing this, <laughs> present, we're opening. Let's, uh, let's, let's push that even further. Let's, let's open it past just the, the dictatorships and the, the murders more broadly. I mean, one of the other tensions here is the internal versus external causes. You know, obviously there are age-old conflicts and there are internecine political machinations, but America features very strongly. Um, Margaret Thatcher gets a shout out, of course she does, uh, with relation to Argentina. And then that continues even today. I mean, the fact that Coca-Cola is so present by the cemetery in Guatemala, you know, the the fact that uh, the US border today is is so heavily sort of feels the ghosts of that of that conflict. And and coffee. I mean coffee you say uh, one of the Guatemalans say this is this is where we, we go to not get paid and get malaria. Basically how do we how can we reckon with the West's complicity in in these genocides and in these murders? And and how important is it to you know, if 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 you could impart some knowledge about that complicity, what would it be? What would you want people to take away from, from your book? What I would really like people to take away is exactly what you said, the past is not the past, that the genocide in Guatemala 
which was supported by the U.S., is a direct driver of the immigration of Guatemalans to the U.S. and the deaths that now happen at the border. So to, to somehow have a conversation about migration without having a conversation about the genocide that the U.S. supported in Guatemala is really to, to leave out a crucial, a crucial aspect, a crucial aspect um, of American complicity. And that is something that feels important to me as an American anthropologist. It was important to me to reckon, you know, I didn't know that much about my own country's complicity in Guatemala or in Argentina. And it was shocking for me to learn about it. So I feel a responsibility to say clearly that we played a part in this and that the incredible society can be Societies can be torn apart by violence very quickly, but it takes a long, long time to stitch societies back together. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Actually, on that note, on the, the fact that societies can be torn apart very quickly, there was a really harrowing moment where you were quoting some of the perpetrators of the Argentinian violence. Uh, and, and one of the, the justifications they gave is that those that had to be disappeared, quote, wanted to destroy the family. You mentioned elsewhere that the, the dead whisper to you that it doesn't have to be this way. But when the same rhetoric is being used and parroted today for whether it's refugees or trans people or left-wing policy, does it scare you to think that like, you know, at least in the popular imaginary, this happened over there and it's in the past. And, you know, basically, do you ever, do you ever read the news? Do you ever, do you ever watch TV and, and get shivers? Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the most terrifying, well, there are a few terrifying moments, but one of the most terrifying moments for me was that I was literally in the field, literally standing in a mass grave and I would go home, take a shower, listen on the news, and I would hear the rhetoric, the same kind of rhetoric that was swirling around to create these mass graves. Because mass graves don't come from nowhere. You know, there's a, there has to be a, there's a building up. There's a building up. And to hear this rhetoric on the news, I really felt like I was time traveling in some sense, or that I was seeing something, I would talk to, um, you know, when I, when I came out of the field or when I was maybe um, on Zoom with my family or friends, I really felt like I, that I knew something that they didn't know, that I knew something that this is real, that this kind of violence, when we have this kind of political rhetoric, this is where it ends. This is the path to mass graves. And that is um, that has felt terrifying to me. 
Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. I think there's there is like I I understand why we want to feel like oh it's something in the past it's something that happens elsewhere. Or maybe you see pictures of um, the most impacted communities in Guatemala, and and you see women wearing traditional Maya clothes, and you think, oh, that's very different than me or my friends or my family. Um, or you look at in the pictures in Argentina from the seventies or eighties, and the film stock is a little faded, and you think, uh, and the hair. Cuts are you know out of style, although they're kind of coming back. So, <laughs> and you and you think that's something far away that doesn't have to do very much with me. And that I would think for me, for me personally, the central lesson of this research was that that is not far away, and that is the inevitable conclusion of a certain kind of political rhetoric. So a final, a final topic, very much leading on from, from that, which is, okay, so we have to remember that, to paraphrase, it could happen here too, and, and we are parroting that rhetoric. Throughout your work, there's a sort of tension between activism and academia. Um, and towards the end of the book, you talk about how you're sort of slightly resenting the fact that everything that you've learned will be reduced to scholarly articles, to footnotes. You say, pinned like butterflies, there will be no room for ghosts and dreams. How have you, how have you wrestled with, with the sort of demands of the ivory tower, with clearly your desire to make a difference to the, to the communities and, and to those who face human rights abuses? And, and sort of how has that brought you to where you are now? Well, I think that I, I am still wrestling with those questions very much. But the first thing I did is that I did not publish this as an academic book, which would be the normal course for me as an academically trained anthropologist would be to have written this as an academic book. But I knew, I knew I, in my first days in the field in Guatemala, I knew I would have to do something different because people were telling me their stories and trusting me with their stories, saying, literally saying to me, don't let people forget what happened here. Like asking, you know, I'm helping amplify these stories. And I was thinking, you know, last time I presented at the, our big anthropology conference, five, five people came to my talk. Oh, oh no. <laughs> well, I mean, you might get luckier than that. But, you know, but I think that the average, I, there's some study someone that says the average uh, academic paper in, in fields like mine is read by seven people. So I just, I knew that I had to do something, something else. And it took me a while to figure out exactly what that would look like. But um, the book is a result of that wrestling. It's a result of um, making a choice to write a book that's not dense and not academic, that's, that can share these stories as widely as my voice can carry. And yeah, I continue to try to figure out what it can look like to use these skills that I've been so fortunate. You know, I was not a, like a natural fit for academia. It took me a long, long time to get to, to climb, I don't know, climb up the ivy tower. Is that what we say? So to, you know, I've, I've invested a lot. I've tried really hard to, to 
gain these skills and I am determined to figure out a way to use them that uh, can have some kind of impact that can be useful in, in some way. So I don't know what that looks like. I'm still trying to figure it out. So please tell me if you know. <laughs> and so just to finish, you know, how does that tie in to your current work uh, in terms of mass surveillance and, uh, and facial recognition? Yes. Well, um, I was really drawn to my current work because I, once I realized that I was not going to be able to sort of continue with forensic anthropology, I was never going to be able to be someone who could uh, work during the day and cry at night, yet I wanted to continue this engagement. Um, and so I started to think, well, how could you get out in front of a mass grave? Like, what? how could you um, change the context so that something like this wouldn't happen again? And I began to um, just become very interested in the forms of surveillance that are available now and think with real terror, what would have happened if the dictatorship in Argentina had had uh, facial recognition technology available or, or all the kinds of biometric technology um, that we have available now, you know, being able to recognize people's voices or recognize their gait. So that was really the transition to me to thinking about the human rights implications of surveillance tech. Well, all I can say is that you know, as as you say, your book is not dense and academic. It is incredibly thoughtful and, and knowledgeable, but it's also poetic and beautiful. And, and I think everyone who's listening to this should go and read it. Alexa, thank you so, so, so much for this conversation and good luck with the book. Oh, thank you so much. This has been um, just a really, a really meaningful conversation. And thank you for reading with, with so much sensitivity. This episode starred Alexa Haggerty and was presented and produced by Luke Naylor Perrett. This series is made by myself and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. Alexa's book Still Life with Bones is out now. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. Listener.